Good morning. Uh, kiddos, you are dismissed. Caleb, off he goes. Man, he's been waiting. All right, Owen, quick behind him. There you go, Sydney, off she goes. All right. Thank God for those of you that are teaching the kids about Jesus. Grateful for all that you do. Laura, thank you. And the others. Yeah. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is a gospel that saves sinners. Thank you for the testimony of Dan. What a beautiful story, God. And the fact that so many of us in this room could bear testimony similarly. We thank you, God. We believe that it's your word. It brings life by the power of your spirit as Christ is born testimony to. So bring life. Now, God, may we believe that the possible Uh, The impossible is possible because you are behind it all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been said that next to hunger and thirst, uh, our most basic human need is storytelling. This seems to be validated by the figure of $41.7 billion, which is the net worth of the TV and movie industry. There's something about stories that allow us to kind of escape from our own lives and have us to enter into other people's lives. Uh, There's something about stories that allow us to dream, to wonder, to laugh, to cry. Stories seem to be more intoxicating to us and desirous than chocolate itself. They're inspiring. They lift us up. We desire them. We need them even. One of my favorite quotes that many of you have heard me reference often is of a Frenchman who said that if you want to build a boat, Don't go and assign a bunch of tasks to people, but instead give them a vision for the immensity of the sea. In other words, tell people a story, a vision of the ocean that they might then build. So there's something about stories when woven to universal truths that motivate us to live for something more than ourselves. And I think that's the case because stories uh, in particular are mapping onto the one true story the all that all the world is wrapped up into. Right? When you think about the Bible, it's easy to forget that the Bible is itself a story. From Genesis to Revelation, it's telling one story. One seamless, beautiful story that ultimately points itself to Jesus. To Christ Jesus. The Old Testament anticipates Him. The New Testament uh, realizes Him. Uh, even at the end of the uh, Bible, we find in Revelation that he is the consummation of all things. And so Christ is the end or the penultimate of the great story of the world that is pushing us along. And so everything in between, including our own lives, is dependent upon how our stories map onto Jesus' story. And that is exactly what Luke is doing in his gospel. He's telling the story of Jesus Christ. The one that is at work in the world. The one for whom the whole world exists. And so he's telling this story about a king and a kingdom. And this morning, we enter into this story. We enter into Luke. We saw last week in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, this teaching where Luke says, remember he was a traveling companion of Paul, the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to this guy Theophilus, and he says to Theophilus uh, that he's writing so that he might have certainty regarding the things that he has been taught. And remember, we said last week, the certainty was grounded in what has been accomplished in Christ. And then he moves into now, now that we move into verse 5, he then moves into that story 
of what Christ has accomplished. And so let's enter into the story of which all stories find their home. Chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Let's stop there for a moment. Let's consider some of the things that Luke has already told us. Herod, that's being referenced there, he's kind of a puppet Roman king uh, that, that, the, that Rome has sort of put in charge of Judea there. We know that he began to reign in the year 37 B.C. And it was during that time that we learned about one of the protagonists of the story of Luke. That's this guy, Zechariah. Now, who knows where Zechariah gets his name, but since we studied this summer the book of Zechariah, perhaps, maybe going back, his father's 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 father was in some ways connected to Zechariah and the book of Zechariah, the prophet of Zechariah. We don't know. But nevertheless, there's Zechariah, and Zechariah was married to the precious Elizabeth. And we see that Elizabeth was a well, has a well-established lineage of her own. She's one of the daughters of Aaron. Now, Aaron was a prominent figure of the Old Testament. Aaron was the brother of Moses, and he is the first priest. And we know that Aaron was married to Elizabeth. And so I'm sure Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, is named after her. But we can see that Zechariah and Elizabeth are advanced in years. These are an aged couple. Who knows how long these two have been married, but we can safely assume they've been married for quite some time. And this beloved couple was righteous before God, it says. So those of you that got those journaling Bibles, by the way, I see there's a few still left over here if you want to grab one of those after the service. But even if you don't have a journaling Bible, you just have a regular Bible, you'd want to underline that notion there before God. That's a really important phrase. And you're going to see that's going to pop back up uh, in another portion of our passage in a really important place. But Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous before God, as is evidenced by their walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, we need to be clear about something, guys. This doesn't mean that Zechariah and Elizabeth were perfect. No, it simply means that they were trusting in the righteousness of the one true God, not their own righteousness, thus making them righteous before God. And their faith, their trust in the one true God was illustrated by their walking in obedience to the commands and statutes of the Lord. So their walking illustrated their trusting in the Lord. So in other words, if you were a neighbor of, let's say, Zechariah and Elizabeth, if you live close to them, we can imagine that for a moment, uh, you would have known them to be very faithful people. So, for instance, if you heard the other day that Zechariah and Elizabeth were known to have stolen a chicken, or were lying about something, or were not attending the worship at the synagogue. You would have instinctively known. That just couldn't be true of these two aged, righteous people. And so they had a reputation of loving God, following God in all of His ways. And if they sinned, they uh, confessed it to God. They begged His forgiveness. So in short, Zechariah and Elizabeth would have been known by the community as that blessed, godly, and sweet old couple. But they also would have been known for something else. Look at verse 7 there. They would have been known to have had no children in their old age. Now, while this might be a choice that people in our own context makes today, make today, this is not the case for the community of Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
to have children was to be blessed by God because children are indeed a blessing. Therefore, to be married for many years and not have children, the surrounding community would have, many of them would have made a false assumption, namely that they weren't blessed by God. You'll see this later, but slide down there in verse 25. People would even reproach the aged woman, Elizabeth, for not having children. We might imagine Elizabeth walking through those streets of that dusty town there. And people maybe whispering as they saw her walk by. Saying derisive things about her. Saying negative things about her. I'm sure there was more of a few people that even came up to Elizabeth and said that she was cursed by God because she didn't have children. Elizabeth probably lived with a lot of hurt, with a lot of pain. She probably lived with a lot of disappointment and dismay. She may have been excluded by the community in some ways as a result of this, even though her husband was even a good and godly priest. Which brings us to a curious observation, doesn't it? Namely, that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God and therefore known by God, therefore loved by God. And yet at the same time, They did not experience one of the basic blessings of God. Isn't that curious? Therefore, we can conclude that it's possible to be righteous, known and loved by God, and yet at this very same time, not be experiencing one of His blessings. Some of you know this conundrum. You live inside of it yourselves. Some of you love God. You follow God. You know that God loves you, but you have not experienced some basic blessing, some beautiful blessing. For some of you, that may mean exactly what Elizabeth has experienced. You desire children, but you don't have them. For some of you, that may mean uh, you desire to be married, but for whatever reason, you're not married. For some of you, that may mean that you desire to be healed in some way, but the Lord has not brought healing. Whatever it may be, you may want a family member to be saved. You've shared the gospel with them. You've prayed for them to know Jesus, and they just haven't. And you, like Zechariah and Elizabeth daily, have to fight these battles of disappointment and pain and possibly even reproach from sinful people in the church that say wrong things. Make wrong conclusions. So, beloved, if that's you, take comfort. Take comfort. You are not the first to experience such trials and tribulations. And also take comfort in knowing that just because you are experiencing the absence of some blessing of God does not speak a word about your righteousness before God. Zechariah and Elizabeth make that clear. If like these two people, if your hope is in Christ alone to save you, if He is your righteousness, then listen, God is for you. He is not against you. So when Jesus asked whether it was the sins of a father or a mother as to why a man was born blind, notice Jesus did not agree with the premise of the question. So friend, the absence of a blessing does not indicate the absence of God's favor upon you. You must rehearse that to yourself every day so that you will not be embittered towards God or towards others. Pastor Thabiti Anyabuile says, quote, our disappointments will either make us bitter or make us better. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth seem to have allowed their barrenness to make them better since they're still hoping in God and still walking in His ways. Another pastor, Alexander McLaren, said once said that, uh, let us learn that unfulfilled wishes are not to clog our devotion, nor to silence our prayers, nor to slacken our running the race set before us. 
And so, beloved, let the absence of one request lead you to throw yourself all the more upon the Lord of mercy, knowing that he cares for you. See, that's what Elizabeth and Zechariah seem to be doing. And I pray, beloved, you would do the same. Remember, Christian, you are not defined by what you do not have. You are defined by what you do have in Christ. Never forget that. Well, back to the story. Elizabeth's barrenness reminds us, doesn't it, of the great matriarchs of old from the story of the Bible. I think that's intentional by Luke. We can be reminded the second we see her in old age having barrenness here in the story of Christ reminds us of Sarah, reminds us of Rachel, reminds us of of Rebecca. Those are the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All three of those women were barren into their old age, though the Lord promised them children. And so Luke is putting this story in the beginning and the careful reader would have known the second he heard that, something's about to happen. It's pretty amazing. But we need to kind of press pause on Elizabeth for a moment. And let's take a look at Zechariah and what happens to him. Look at verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. There it is again. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. All right, so at the time of these events, which we're reading about, we know from history that there's some 18,000 priests in Israel. Those 18,000 priests would have been broken up into 24 different divisions, and each of those divisions would have served the temple in some way twice a year. And tradition was that no priest could offer incense inside the temple more than once. And most would have never done it once their entire life. And so we can only imagine how Zechariah's heart leapt with great joy and fear when he saw that the lot fell to him. This was about to be one of the most important events in Zechariah's entire life. Forget about the angel for a moment. Just that alone would have been a huge moment in his life. So Zechariah was going to go into the middle of the temple to burn incense. And we got to remember, guys, those of us that were here during our study through Zechariah, remember the temple was the place where God's presence was said to dwell. Inside the temple itself was one room. In the middle of the temple was one room that was broken up with a curtain right in the middle of of that room, making two rooms, two divisions. And so when Zechariah would have entered into that first room, he would be entering into what was called the holy place holy place and behind that curtain that he would have seen was said to be the holy of holies that's where the presence of god was said to dwell and that space the holy of holies the one behind the curtain that space could only be entered into one time a year by the high priest on the day of atonement 
But the front part, the front compartment, the holy place, not the holy of holies, the holy, the holy place, and that part that Zechariah was going into, that space would have been entered into twice a day. One time in the morning, one time in the afternoon. He's likely, since we have a multitude of people praying, this is probably the afternoon session. But upon entering into that holy place, Zechariah would have been would have gone in there, and when he walked into that room, he would have seen to his left a golden lampstand. And to his right, he would have seen a table of the bread of presence. And the altar of incense that he was going to fulfill, to, to go to work on, that would have been right in front of him, right before the curtain that led into the Holy of Holies. And that had to be lit two times a day. Again, once in the morning, once in the afternoon. This altar of incense is talked about a lot in Exodus chapter 30. And we have to remember that every single facet of the temple, every piece of there, that's all of it, the golden lampstand, the bread of presence, the incense, all of it was in some ways pointing to the ministry of Christ. It was meant to be some sort of symbol pointing to, to help us understand the ministry of Christ. And so the altar of incense that Zechariah is going into uh, fulfill, to light, the altar of incense was meant to be a pleasant aroma that was meant to represent the prayers of the people of God. They were pleasantly being lifted up to the nostrils of the good God. That's what that's for. So Zechariah walks in. He goes to the altar of incense. He lights the incense there in front of the curtain to the Holy of Holies. Maybe he's shaking a bit from fright or excitement of the moment. And as he's in there, verse 10 says, outside you've got these multitude of people that are praying out there. And again, this is the... First and last time Zechariah will ever be in there. And upon lighting the incense, it was customary to pray a prayer. And it's right about then, as if the environment was not (laughs) intimidating enough, that the angel Gabriel shows up to his right. Right there. Now listen, when angels show up in the Bible, guys, they are not these cute, cuddly, pudgy, little warm things. When angels show up in the Bible, people freak out. All right, people freak out. Some are tempted to worship them. And so Zechariah's adrenaline is already pumping and uh, Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, he shows up and he says, we know later from verse 19, uh, that he stands in the presence of God. That probably means that looking at Revelation chapter 8, uh, Gabriel is one of the uh, seven angels that hold the trumpets. Um, Zechariah, understandably, has is troubled and fear fell upon him. This same angel, Gabriel, this same guy, spoke to Daniel and gave him a vision many years before this. We know, looking at the next passage, this same angel will go and speak to Mary. And that word angel, it means messenger. That's what the word angel means. Messenger. Gabriel has come to bring a message. And thank God for those first words. Can you imagine being Zechariah in there? You're already heightened. You're lighting the thing. You're praying the prayer. The boom. Right? Crazy stuff. Then he says, thank God for his first words. Don't be afraid. Now I'm probably still afraid. But nevertheless, at least he says those words. And we've already seen, right, that Zechariah is righteous before God. But he's not righteous. Guys, don't lose sight of this. He's not righteous because he's a priest. He's not righteous because he's really religious. He's righteousness, again, because he trusts God's righteousness as his own. Therefore, since he is righteous before the Lord, he need not fear in the face of this angel. That's why he could say that. Now, the reality is, friends, all of us will have a moment similar to this. Where we will stand not just before an angel. We will stand before the Lord himself. 
That reality is coming and it will strike fear in you, friend. We need to know that the Lord is not some free-flowing hipster that we just sort of mosey into the presence of and eat Doritos with. No, the Lord is shrouded with glory. Right? If, if an angel strikes fear, how much more was the presence of the one true and living God? And so will you have reason to be afraid on that day, friend? When you meet him, we have reason to be afraid. Or will you, like Zechariah, have reason to not be afraid, as the angel says, because you're trusting in the righteousness of Christ to make you clean in his presence? Which will it be for you? Well, Gabriel gives his message. He says, your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. I'll stop there for a moment. I want you to notice that word prayer there is in the singular form. In other words, it doesn't say your prayers have been heard, but your prayer. He seems to be indicating one particular prayer. Now, we might be led to believe that it was a prayer for a child, since that's what Gabriel said is common. But as you'll notice, slide over there to verse 18, you'll see Zechariah doubts that a child can come from his aged wife. So, more than likely, Gabriel is referencing the prayer that Zechariah just prayed in lighting that incense. And that prayer, since it was probably the only time he would ever enter into the temple, into the holy place his whole life, I'm sure my guess would be that it had something to do with the redemption of Israel. And the Lord in his infinite kindness answers that prayer about the redemption of Israel with what I'm sure were a thousand of other prayers for a child. Isn't that great? One prayer answered by the Lord in two ways. So it's as if the Lord is saying, I will answer your prayer for redemption by giving you what you asked for before and giving you a son that would prepare the way for redemption. That, guys, is how awesome the Lord is. He is able to dole out his blessings in so many ways, as we will see. And you look at the name that they give. They are to give this child that's coming. They give him, they are to give him the name of John. I'm sure there are a few Johns in the room this morning. I wonder if you know what your name means. The name of John means the Lord is gracious. Isn't that beautiful? This preparing for Jesus' coming is going to be prepared by this guy John who symbolizes the graciousness of God. And he is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Not only because he's bringing redemption along, but also because the Lord, as we see, hears our prayers. You see that there? Look at verse 13. Your prayer has been heard. Sometimes we just don't know, right? If we were all, am I the only one in the room that sometimes prays and just wonders? Am I the only guy just sitting here praying, wondering if it's just praying to the wind? Am I the only guy in the room that sometimes prays and wonders? I should just stop praying that prayer because nothing seems to be changing. I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room that's tempted to think that way when it comes to prayer. But brothers and Sisters, we see from this passage, we must pray without ceasing because this passage indicates to us that God hears. He hears our prayers. Who knows when or how the Lord may answer our prayers? I mean, just think about how much pain Elizabeth walked around with. Not to mention Zechariah, because I'm sure he bore his own ministry of reproach. Uh, But think about how many times they're praying and these Answers are not coming for a child. But more importantly, think about the amount of prayers that they offered for the consummation of Israel. 
Hundreds and hundreds of years have passed since the days of the prophet of Zechariah. You remember that? You recall there was a prophecy there that said your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey? Guys, generation after generation had passed with no king, no salvation. And yet the incense burned. The prayers were offered day after day. Lifted up as a pleasant aroma, wafting their way before God. And the Lord heard every single one of them. Knowing that they would not only be heard, but they would be answered in due time. Beloved, do not give up praying. Do not give up praying. Never cease praying and pray and hope. Pray and hope. In particular, pray for the consummation. Pray for the end. Pray for Christ to return. Pray for that. Believe that that day is coming. Remember, those guys are praying day after day, hundreds and hundreds of years, and the Lord Jesus had not yet come hundreds and hundreds of years, and He finally did come. In the same way, it has been 2,000 years. We're tempted to give up. He's not going to come. We must keep praying. He's indicated we have every reason to trust Him in that promise. He's fulfilled every single promise in Christ. Why would He not fulfill one more? Keep praying. Keep praying. We can be sure that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are continuing to pray because of the message of Gabriel. And look what look at what Gabriel says that they will find joy in. So as Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying, he did offer that one prayer. Consummation is coming. Notice what Gabriel says they're going to find joy and gladness in when it comes to John. Do you see it? Look at verse 14 and 15 again. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for or because... He will be great before the Lord. Zechariah and Elizabeth were not only going to have joy because they were going to have a son. They were. They were going to have joy along with a multitude of others because John was going to be great before the Lord. And so parents, let me speak to you for a moment. Is that the one thing that you have the greatest hope and joy in? The prospect of your child's salvation. That they will be great before the Lord because they trust in the Lord. Is that your great hope for your child? We have one gazillion small children in our church. Right? And they just keep growing. Is that your prayer for them? Is that your hope for them? That they would be great before the Lord? Is your joy and gladness going to be in that? Ultimately. See, I know I'm tempted to have the most joy. I have two sons. I'm tempted to have the most joy based off of what my sons might accomplish in this world. And that, by the way, is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. That's a good thing. I would have great joy to know that the children of this church were educated. They grew up to cure cancer, fed the hungry, invent the next great device, be a CEO, be a president, whatever. But I would hope that my joy and our gladness for our children would not not find their greatest delight in those things. I would hope that the parents of this church would find that the greatest hope, the greatest joy would be that our children love God. Follow Him. Just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. We would be like them, wanting that more than anything else. See, if my sons grew up to be ditch diggers that were never noticed by the world, yet they were beloved by God, I would die a most happy father. Likewise, if one of my sons grew up to be an all-star shortstop for the St. Louis Cardinals, that would be awesome. But if their fame and fortune caused them to be dismissive of the gospel, 
I would die a most unhappy father. Now, I realize that our kids' salvation is out of our ultimate control, but guys, the expectations of our kids is very much in our control. Our joys, our hopes, our dreams for them can include all those many good things, but may they be ultimately in the fact that they know God, love God, follow God. Keep in mind the ministry of John. John would grow up to have a ministry of reproach, just like his, just like his mom and dad. He's going to grow up to have a ministry of reproach. He was rejected by the religious elite, and he was likely counted as one of those crazy people on the outside of town by the rest of the city. He lived in the wilderness. He wore camel hair. He called people to repent of their sin and follow Jesus. And eventually he has his head cut off because of his views on marriage. And yet Jesus understood him to be the greatest prophet. Known, loved, and celebrated even today, 2,000 years later. And yet Zechariah's joy and gladness is not only in his righteousness, but there also, we see here, their great joy and gladness would be in his unique role that he would have in the accomplishment of righteousness for all who believe. He was not only going to be great before the Lord because he was righteous, like his mom and dad. He was going to be great before the Lord because he had a very unique mission. We see that he wasn't uh, supposed to drink strong drink. So John the Baptist uh, was not to have any Budweiser, Yellowtail, or Jack Daniels. None of that was to touch his lips. Because he was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. In other words, John was to be controlled not by the spirits, but by the Spirit. Y'all just got that. Little joke bomb there. He was to be controlled by the Spirit. That's what's going on there. If you wonder, what's up with that? That's what's up. Because, right, alcohol can have us to be uncontrolled. But when we're controlled by the Spirit, we are self-controlled. And what will he do when he's filled with the Spirit? Look at verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. There's his ministry. That's the heart of John's ministry. Calling people to turn to the Lord their God. Calling people to turn to Jesus. Away from sin, Satan, and the world to the Lord their God. And we see in verse 17, he's going to do it in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Meaning in the spirit and power of a prophet who speaks the words of God to the people of God in the power of God. John was going to turn people to the Lord Jesus to make ready a people prepared. And guys, this is what it looks like to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Turning, to pe turning people to Jesus. That's what it means. You want to know what does it mean to be full of the Spirit? It means turning to Jesus. That's what we see from this passage. John the baptizer, in my estimation, was a charismatic Christian. Why? Because he was full of the Holy Spirit, as is evidenced by the fact that he wanted people to know and enjoy and look to Jesus. Any other definition of being Spirit-filled is either incomplete or erroneous. Jesus describes the role of the Spirit in John 16 as His glorifying me. That's what the Spirit's supposed to do. John 16, glorify Jesus, make much of Jesus, have people turn to Jesus. So when we turn to Jesus, when we glory in Jesus, when we enjoy Jesus, we are full of the Spirit. When we call people to be uh, pointing to Jesus, to turn to Jesus, we're full of the Spirit. Because that's what the Spirit does. 
And John was going to have this unique ministry of writing the people to do just that. To turn people to Jesus. So John is a kind of bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He's readying people for this New Covenant. And he does so, John does, by kind of clearing the dinner table so that the Feast of Christ might be enjoyed. And this should be no surprise to those of us that are familiar with the story of the Bible. This would not have been a surprise to the people of Israel because they had been anticipating a guy like this to come. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 says, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Of course, John was in the wilderness preparing people for the way of the Lord. And we have the final words of the final prophet in the Old Testament preparing us for the coming of John when it says in Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6, quote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Notice that Luke is quoting that very verse. And of course, we know in later, later in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus will say that John was the fulfillment of all of this. He was the prophet Elijah who spoke the words of God to prepare the people for the Son of God. And so, guys, we should rejoice yet again that God is faithful to his faithless people. Here it is again. He promised to send a forerunner to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. And true to his word, he did it. I love this quote from Dwight Moody. He says that God never made a promise that was too good to be true. We sang it last week. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, thy Father. There is no shadow or turning with you. So just think about it for a moment. How many generations went by thinking that the Lord had forgotten his promise? How many? It was hundreds and hundreds of years. How many people just concluded, I'm done with the Lord because he doesn't seem to answer his promises? And yet, here was John, soon to come, ready to turn the people, ready for them to meet Jesus, not a minute too late. Oh, beloved, trust the Lord. He is rarely early, but he is never late. But before we move on and finish out this part of the story, let me join in the ministry of John and let me call us all to turn to the Lord Jesus. And in order to do that, that means something very significant. That means all of us need to turn away from other idols that we all have, myself included. We need to turn away from those other idols, those other masters, those other lords that are competing for the lordship of Christ and our worship of Him. Turn away from those things. Turn to Jesus. Jesus said Himself, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. John would later say of Jesus that he was unable to even tie, untie his shoe or tie his shoe. The one that Jesus called the greatest of all. Just think about that. Couldn't even, didn't even think it was proper to even tie Jesus' shoe because he was so great. Turn to him, beloved. Turn to him. As Lord, as Master, as King. And by turning to Him, I mean see Him, trust Him, treasure Him above all else. Know Him, enjoy Him. Turn from falling anything else that tries to compete with the infinite worth of Christ. And friend, if you are currently turned to other things as Lord and Masters, whether that be your job, your career, your fortune, your fame, or just the indulgence of the world or yourself, Friend, my encouragement to you would be to turn from those things. You were not made for those things and they will never satisfy you. You were made to know and enjoy Christ. 
You cannot claim Christ and serve another master. It's not possible. Jesus is the center of the story, friend, that you were made to live inside. And so until He becomes your true north, you'll never be at peace. Because you won't be as Zechariah and Elizabeth and John were. You will never be righteous before the Lord. And you'll have reason to be afraid before Him. And so, if you're wondering how it is you turn, it's not just by doing a bunch of religious stuff. It's not by trying to be a priest or whatever the case may be. It's by dying to yourself and living to Jesus. It's by recognizing that exact truth that Dan said so clearly. But all these other things that were disappointing him. He understood that Jesus was the King. The same Jesus he'd grown up hearing about. He understood that this Jesus, the one that was faithful, sinless his entire life. You heard Dan say so clearly, he dies for the sins of all that trust him. And raised on the third day, revealing that he really did die for those sins. You trust Him. You turn away and say, I will live for Christ. I want His joy, His ways, His life to be my Lord, my Master. And let that legislate everything else below it. That's what it means to turn to Him. Turn away from those things as Lord, as Masters, and turn to Jesus as Lord and King. Die to self. Live to Him. So you might live again. See there in verse 17, Jesus came so that we who are all disobedient might be Readied for the Lord. And the way we are readied for the Lord is by acknowledging our disobedience, our following other masters, turning from them, turning to Jesus in faith and saying, I want you, Jesus, as Lord. And let me also address the parents of the room one more time. You guys are getting a lot of it this morning, aren't you? Notice that part of the fruit of turning to the Lord Jesus is having the hearts of the fathers turn to the children. You see that? I believe that's a reference to the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6 where parents are given the charge to train up their sons and daughters in the faith. And there in Deuteronomy 6, we are told that parents are to teach their children diligently. Not passively. Not just sort of dropping the kids off back here so that we'll we'll let those guys take care of it. Diligently teaching them the faith. God entrusted, parents, your children to you so that you might show them the ways of Christ. As you, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, as you walk by the way, as you lie down, when you rise. In other words, all the time. All the time. Tell, let me encourage all of the parents in the room, tell the story of Christ to your children as you take walks, when you read books, when you go to baseball games, when you listen to music, when they're doing homework. (laughs) Show them Jesus. The whole world in some way points to Him. Open up the book of the world and show them Christ. In all of those facets. And fathers, there is a special emphasis on you. Dads in the room, special emphasis on you in this passage. You are given leadership of your home. And so if you have turned to Christ, that means you're turning your children to the Lord. So let me encourage you men to find ways to integrate the whole of your family's life together. Your children together. Let it not be said of the fathers of this church that we were Sunday Christians. Let our children say of us, my dad treasured Jesus. My dad was oriented by Jesus. Let that be said of you, dads. And if you need help with that, it's not an uncommon request that I have from many of you that come to me and just say, I just need to learn how to wash my wife with the water word, teach my kids the word. If you need help with that, come to the elders. 
We'll help you walk that through. And also, uh, we have a very, very, very small children's library. One that I try to increase as much as I can every year. So this morning, I gave Catherine the task of carrying these books of these, well, about this many books. They're right back there. One of the things that uh, I've heard I do with my kids, when children are children, they read a lot of books. So read them good books. Read them Christian books. Tell them great stories of great people in the faith. There's a whole series back there on different people from the faith. You can check those books out. Would you please check those books out too, by the way? There's a little sheet there. Sign your name. Take it real quick. But take those books and read them. Not just once, but time and time and time again. That the story of Christ would be woven into their lives. Dad, you have a special task to point people to Jesus. Well, we need to finish up the story for this week. Zechariah, we know at this point on the story, he's still standing there in the holy place. Gabriel's talked to them. He's there in the temple. Though he's told to not be afraid, he's probably a little afraid. And not only that, he's apparently forgotten what kind of God that he loves. Look at what comes next. Final passage, verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? Referencing the child. For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Don't you love that we can be disobedient, and yet God still works His plan out? And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Love these words. Verse 24. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. So the blameless Zechariah loses sight of the storyline of Scripture. As a priest, he would have known about Isaac. The son of laughter. He would have known that story. Remember Sarah in her old age is told she's going to have a baby and she laughs at it. And so they named Isaac Laugh. He would have known that story. He would have known the story of uh, Sarah and Rebecca. He would have known the story of Hannah. And yet he seems to have forgotten it in this moment. He doubts. He questions. Gabriel uh, points him to the ministry of uh, what Christ will do in the sense that he then has Zechariah to be muted because he doubts that promise. Zechariah forgets that the Lord loves to do stuff like this because he just likes showing off. (laughs) And he can do it this way. He shows off. Take a look at verse 36 and 37. Gabriel will share this message speaking to Mary here in reference to Elizabeth in her old age. Notice what he says. Gabriel says, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. If He can speak the world into existence with words, guys, He can bring the barren, a child into a barren womb. No problem. But because Zechariah doubts the ability of the Lord to do the impossible, his tongue is stricken. He will not be able to talk until John is born. But notice, he still will come. And we need to be clear here, we've already established with Elizabeth's barrenness to be stricken with calamity does not mean that the Lord is disciplining you. 
But here we have evidence that the Lord has it in his tool chest to do so. He does it with Zechariah, but listen, not out of anger, but in order to grow the trust of Zechariah, to grow their trust. God disciplines those he loves and the Lord loves Zechariah. And you'll see in a couple weeks, Zechariah learns his lesson. He gives great praise to God for his power and his faithfulness to deliver him a son. He will still be, as Gabriel says, full of joy and gladness because of what the Lord has done in their midst. Even though he's got this muteness, he's still going to trust the Lord. His trust is going to grow. But it does instruct us, doesn't it? It instructs us that nothing is impossible with God. Therefore, we should trust him. We should have faith in his otherwise impossible promises. We see in verse 24, look there, Elizabeth does in fact conceive a child. And look at how this godly woman describes how that conception came about. Quote, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach. That's all the Lord needed to do. Just look on her. Nothing is impossible with God. Just look on her. It's all he needed to do. Where Zechariah doubts, Elizabeth believes All the Lord needed to do is look upon her, how powerful he is, God. And did you notice the multifaceted blessing of this pregnancy? Not only is John going to be great before the Lord, not only will Zechariah and Elizabeth rejoice because of that, not only will many rejoice for that, but there's an additional blessing of the Lord. You see it? At the giving of this child, the reproach of Elizabeth by her peers is taken away. I love this. The blessings of God are not a zero-sum game. In other words, because the impossible is possible with God, he doesn't have to bless the people with John or bless Elizabeth with a child and take her reproach away. God, in his infinite kindness, he can do both. No problem. God is like that. His blessings splash onto all who are in pleasant proximity to his work. That's the case here in Zechariah. Uh, That's the case in the book of Luke. That's the case, isn't it, in our lives as well. And so let me encourage us all this week to not be like Zechariah and instead be more like Elizabeth, believing that God can do the impossible. Believe that the Lord can look upon the most ardent atheist and make him a saint. Believe that he can heal marriages that seem lost. That he can take a sin struggle that you've been struggling with for decades. Turn that around just by looking upon you. Like Elizabeth, we may have to wait to our old age to see it. Don't lose sight of that. But he can do it. It can. God can take our reproaches away. How do we know that? Because he took our greatest reproach away in Christ, right? It's a small thing for him to do these other things. Believe. Turn to Jesus. Look upon his face. Believe that the impossible is possible because God is good and he is powerful. Trust his promises. They are not impossible. This story shows us that. God is in the business of bringing life out of dead places. And so trust him this week to do just that. To graft your story. To remind you of how your story maps onto this story. So that the impossible would be possible in your life. In this community's life. In this world's life. Listen to this. Final words. Christians, we are not to be a people of pessimistic nature. We are not to be cynics. We're to be people of hope. Because we believe that God can do the impossible. And He will. Don't be cynical. Don't be jaded. Don't be pessimistic. Be people of hope. God can do the impossible. He shows us that in Elizabeth and in Zechariah. He shows us that in Christ. Believe Him. Trust Him. And never give up in believing and having hope in praying. You never know when the fulfillment of that prayer will come to pass. 
And God may use that struggle for decades so that you might rest in His infinite grace when you're 70 or 80. Stay at it. He's given us reason to hope. He's given us reason to trust Him. And so may we do that. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise You that You are a God that can do the impossible. No one and nothing is more powerful than You. And God, how kind of You to work through we sinners like Zechariah and Elizabeth, blameless people, to bring about Your goodwill. So God, may we turn to Jesus this week. And may we have joy and gladness at the prospect of seeing His face and seeing the consummation of all things brought together. May we be people of hope. All you have to do is look upon us. So God, we trust in you to do that. We ask in Jesus' name.